0: Hi everyone, I'm Suzanne Delahunty and this is Freedom Hunters, a podcast about inspiring people who have made fascinating career changes and found freedom in their dream career. We talk about their journeys, how they changed career, the challenges they faced along the way and what success means for them now that they're doing what they love. Most of my Australian listeners and probably a few of my UK listeners will have heard of today's guest on Freedom Hunters. You might have watched her come runner-up in the first ever series of Australian MasterChef in 2009. Or you might have watched her subsequent TV cooking series, or made delicious dishes from one of her cookbooks. And if you've been to Adelaide in South Australia recently, you might have had a cake and coffee at her cafe, Jam Face, in the Adelaide Central Market. It's Po Ling Yao, who I had the absolute pleasure of talking to about her career journey. While Po is now running her cafe and doing various media projects, she started her career in a very different way. She was a successful artist and makeup artist who decided to follow her love of cooking when she joined an, at the time, unknown cooking show called MasterChef Australia. I absolutely loved talking to Poe. We talked about what it was like to be on MasterChef and how she dealt with the media and huge attention that followed it. She shared the challenges of running a bricks and mortar business and we also pondered the question of how to ensure that when your passion becomes your career, it doesn't stop being a passion. I spoke to Poe over Skype on a sunny autumn day at her home in Adelaide. So as you listen, you can picture the gorgeous Poe sitting on her veranda in her backyard, the sun on her face and a breeze rustling through the trees, and every goddamn native bird in all of Adelaide that decided to land in her garden and go nuts while we did the interview. So if you're wondering what you're hearing in the background, that's it. Anyway, please enjoy this fun and lively interview with Poe. Hi, Poe. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me,
1: Suzanne. It's a real pleasure.
0: I'm so excited to talk to you all about your career, but I wanted to first talk about uh, your background. So you were born and lived in Kuala Lumpur for the first nine years of your life. What was it like growing up in Malaysia?
1: It's funny. It was. I've always remembered it as a haze. I was I'm not really sure why. I've always felt like I was beamed in from somewhere else wherever I am. <laughs> <laughs> people, can, people always want to say, oh, it's, you know, because you're a migrant. I was like, no, I had it when oh, I had it in my motherland. Um, and I don't know whether it – I think a lot of it largely stemmed from me not fitting very well in at school academically. And so I always felt like everything was a bit scary and uh, I wasn't understanding, I was not understood. <laughs> uh, and I always use that Larson single-cell cartoon of the dog looking up at the owner who's just saying blah, 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 down to the dog, and that was cool for me. So that was a huge source of anxiety for me, and it coloured my world, that anxiety. So the only times I was happy was when I was at home playing and it was mainly in quite a solitary way because mum and dad were really busy and I had an older brother. And he was pretty cool, but you know, it was three years between us when we were tiny. so But he did influence me a lot. He was a massive drawer. So that, that was sort of my first introduction to being creative, I guess. Uh, Memories of Malaysia are very food-centric, lots of wet you know really reluctant trips to wet markets full of like stinky stuff wet floors and I, <laughs> I used to get dragged through and I would just be doing this the whole time holding my nose and <laughs> being kind of hauled by my elbows and being a tropical country would always be wearing open toe shoes and any of that mystery goo on the ground got on my toes I would just be hysterical <laughs> because everybody slaughtering animals and doing all sorts of things, and it would just be all the you know flow from the market. So it was quite you know quite um, uh, overwhelming for a kid, I guess, the old factory. So that lots of yeah food, lot, very, very my memories in Malaysia always hawker stalls, that sort of street food culture, and uh, even in the evenings I could remember things like the chakwe tau guy. It's a really famous Malaysian dish. Noodle dish, ringing his bell, coming down the street in his mobile hawker stall, and we would like be scrambling for change. And we'd run outside, and you know he'd just cook it on cook it on his little bike setup, um, and we'd have supper. So they're kind of the memories, yeah.
0: How beautiful. So then, at the age of nine, you and your family moved to Australia. So what was it that took you to Adelaide, and what? And what was it like to move to a completely different country and, and culture at that age?
1: So when my parents told announced that we were moving to Adelaide, Australia, I literally had this as a nine-year-old, probably had my first kind of knowing moment. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is why life has been so weird. I haven't had... I'm finally going to be home. Like, I had this really vivid thought. I'm finally going to feel at home. And I did. It was just really strange. When we arrived, I just loved everything about it. And I remember selling the eucalyptus, hearing the magpies warble. And I remember just thinking, even in wonderment, like how beautiful the street signs were. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, everything about it, I, I loved. And and the reason why we came over was because, as I said before, I wasn't very uh, academically gifted. My parents were genuinely worried about my future in, you know, uh, my secondary, um, yeah, uh, my education. So, you know, uh, the chances of me getting into university, possibly my brother as well, you know, were very slim. So they were, yeah, wanted to guarantee that we would, we would, have, we would have that.
0: Yeah. So how did you find school in Australia then?
1: I loved school in Australia. Uh, Obviously, there were just those usual things that plague a migrant kid, but not because anyone teased me. I had a really lovely experience, actually. Like I had, um, I always say her name. It's just sort of I'm looking for her. I wonder where she is. Uh, Philippa, yeah, Philippa Pierce. She was a kid that just took me under her took me under her wing. She had freckles, pigtails and blue eyes. And I remember thinking, wow, you're so amazing. You ride your bike to school and you have a lunchbox with a little, like, refrigerated bit in it. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, so, yeah, she took me under her wing and, you know, I got teased a couple of times. But that was just mainly, like, silly young boys teasing girls. And maybe there were a few racial things in there, but I got very – I was very protected by PIP. Uh, So that really shielded me from any sort of initial, you know, issues at school. I loved school. I excelled at school because coming from a really – from an Asian country, I think it's safe to say, you know, they're very academically focused, not much on social – development or the arts so I was very much I always felt very out of sorts and I never knew that my calling was going to be creative it was just I knew that this was not working yeah (laughs) and and it was interesting when I came to Australia I remember seeing kids kind of uh, my uh, the, the age where we would be expected to even start to go into exams and stuff still sort of like playing around in sandpits and stuff I was like what is going on here? This country is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) A bit kind of, I guess, of my youth. So, um, yeah, uh, so that was really, really, the the move wasn't really traumatic. It was, it just made sense to me. I loved it. Uh, Our first year, we just stayed literally all in one room in my uncle's house. Um, that's Mum's brothers, so she had two brothers and sister that were already living here, so that was why Adelaide was an obvious choice mm-hmm. uh, and it was a very friendly, easy place to live. so it was um it was a very easy sort of uh, easy adjustment for me. Um, but then as I got kind of old yeah when I got older, I did start to feel these feelings of isolation a bit more, but they came, I knew, they, I always, I've only just figured this out, that it was completely self-imposed. And, yes, I mean, I grew up with, you know, um, watching American TV even when I was in Malaysia, and obviously in Australia you grow up with, you know, images that are largely Western or European, so I, it, it's it is due to that, but I I realise it's all very self-imposed. These feelings of alienation that I have, that I had have, have had as a kid, all through like school life, I would only have like one or two best friends. That was sort of the pattern I had. I wasn't popular, but I wasn't disliked. I was just kind of that person that kind of flew under the radar.
0: Did that come from just being an introvert? So, yeah, and I
1: just always felt I had very low self-esteem and I was very – I used to look at Aussie kids as this thing that I could never attain and it was just this kind of innate coolness. And I always tell this story of one lunchtime when I was watching this girl when I was just queuing up to buy something at the tuck shop. Little things like that took tremendous courage for me to do, like like just to be standing in queue, I would feel so self-conscious about doing this thing. And it's still with me. I have to check in for it. like I have to actually check in and kind of go, hey, just what are you doing? Stop returning to your nine-year-old self. You're okay. <laughs> um, it still returns to me at times. But I remember standing in queue and I was watching this girl. She was blonde. She was eating a Sunny Boy. Do you remember those? Oh, do yeah, like I remember
0: tri- Sunny Boys. The <laughs> triangle sort of ice <laughs> ice lollies. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. And um and she was just sucking on that and um and I remember seeing the sun hit her blonde hairs on her arm and she had this tan skin and you know, blonde hair and freckles and I was just going, Wow, I will never be that cool <laughs> <laughs> This is really a weird thought. So that was kind of how I saw me and everyone else. I was just mm. like, I will never be that. I'm always going to be this outcasty, weird kid that doesn't really have a whole bunch of friends. And Yeah, I was very inward as a kid for sure. Mm.
0: And did that lead to you getting creative with with your art or did that come later? It
1: happened quite early on actually. I At the beginning, as... As a very tiny child, I used to do it to mimic my brother. So mm. he used to draw these really complex, like, war scenes, and he used to do that thing where he'd get build a lot of model airplanes and even paint, like, individual soldiers. He'd get a whole battalion and he'd paint every single soldier <laughs> with all the correct, like, colors for, you know... Um, their helmets and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. So I watched him be creative from a really young age and I really – he was my bro, so I used to, you know, be quite worshipful of him and I uh, used to, yeah, mimic him a lot. I used to just draw pages for, like, nonsense scribbles and it was just this kind of mimicking act, just like kids, you know, when they're two, like, to sweep the floor because they've seen mum do it. Mm. Um, So it was a bit of that and – Whenever we had projects where I could draw, I noticed I was kind of getting a bit of attention for it. So I was like, "Hmm, this is cool. I think I might be – this is something that I am maybe good at. And at that point also I was quite – I was kind of a bit – I was a bit ahead because it was strange coming from Malaysia because I was always like – on the bottom rung, I was always failing my exams and not doing well. And this is like from age seven, you, you already have like reading timetables and to you know reading schedules for exams, and you're doing geography and history, and it's it's really intense. So coming here, where I definitely it really felt the difference of the kind of learning that was imposed on us was just so different. You know, there was encouragement to play and be creative, and uh, and so. Yeah, I noticed that this thing got me attention and I felt good about it and I noted in my head that this is something that made me feel unique and that I could stand out with even though I didn't feel that great about myself.
0: What did you want to be when you grew up? I think
1: I just fantasised a lot about being some kind of entertainer. There was a lot of singing into hairbrushes and uh, doing accents to myself (laughs) and, like, um, anything I could get my hands on that was... A script of any kind I remember I had like toe-to-toe hall and I used to just sit there and just try and do accents and be all different characters so I definitely I didn't know what I wanted to be but when I look back on it there was a lot of that kind of thing going on
0: so with that in mind what did you go on to study at university I went on to study
1: a Bachelor of Visual Communications which is essentially like a Bachelor of Design and I specialized in illustration the idea of doing something like that was very attractive to me because I was, I was obsessed with being popular because I was so not that and I thought, that's, I think that's how you do it. You, you do something like that. You do put yourself in the limelight. So I think that was one of the reasons that the idea of doing being an entertainer, I, I like that idea because people like you. I'm pretty sure that's, that had something to do with it.
0: Once you got out of – once you finished your communications degree, what, would, mm. what did you do work-wise straight out of university?
1: It was very varied. So even during I was uh, – so straight after I came – I freelanced quite uns- unsuccessfully for a while because I did a degree. So you don't, they don't really teach you how to really run a, business, a small business. So that was fairly disastrous, you know, lots of like spelling mistakes and jobs I had to pay for because, you know, I didn't realise you had to edit your work, (laughs) that kind of stuff. Uh, So I did a little bit with the freelancing, with illustration, and then I also realised I never – I hated working for other people. I hated that feeling of someone telling me, being art-directed, and it's usually what they don't want. So I just found that quite frustrating and I – Worked in a sushi bar for a friend, uh, for a friend's business. Kind of did a little bit of graphic designing for them and at the same time supervised. So I was in a food environment there. Did that. Oh, and then at the same time, I was also pursuing this, uh, quite, yeah, it was pretty intense interest at the time to become a makeup artist to the stars. And I think again, this is something to do with being close to the stars because I really liked to dream and I think being close to people in these kinds of fields made me feel that something magical was possible for me.
0: So mm. how did you get into makeup artistry? Uh, I started, a friend was
1: quitting at a job at a glamour studio, hilarious, you know where your standard like, your standard like bale of hay one, that's the country one, with the... Uh, <laughs> ted back to your <laughs> background and then you do the glam one with your full you know your um, what, what, chiffon not chiffon your um taffeta stole around you and oh, then this um, yeah, yeah. things that were in in the ni- early 90s 80s so I worked in one of those and I didn't have any training I just went into it as a creative person that knew how to bring you know a surface to life you know mm-hmm. being a painter and I just slowly built my kit up and then started Started shooting with local reputable local photographers, and then built up my portfolio, and then just started getting work. But it was never prolific because I'm in Adelaide. There's no there, at the time, especially there was no real um, print media. wasn't you know ex- doesn't you know it's it's not really a place where you do things like that. I mean, back then there was hardly any print. A couple of print media. There was a couple of local mags, and um, and then you get some catalog work. Yeah, so it was very infrequent. So I was doing the sushi bar job and that at the same time. And it was, I probably worked at the sushi bar for a year or two. And I thought, I really want to give this makeup thing a crack. And I said that to my husband and he's like, well, I'll support you. He's like, we had a very very tumultuous relationship, but we were great at enabling each other. So he said, I'll I'll support you. If you want to go there for six months and have a good crack at it He's like, I'd 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 be cool with that and I was like, Really? He goes, Yeah, yeah. He goes, but it's kind of a bit like a football like like a shoelace tire on a football team. I was like, What do you mean? I get there's incredible artistry involved He goes, Yeah, I know, but have you you know, he guess there's very few makeup artists in the world that like where you know their name, you know? Apart from maybe Kevin O'Quan that was like the big guy at the time. And um and he goes, you know, except for people like that. And he goes, and you know, the chances of that are quite quite low. And he goes, you know what I don't like about it? It's the fact that you are beholden to someone noticing your talent and then wanting to book you and blah blah blah. He's like, it's, he goes, do you really want to do that? He goes, you you've got other talents. Maybe you should paint, maybe you should paint. I was like, "Are you crazy? How would I even know how to enter the, you know, fine art world?" That's that's ridiculous and we went into this huge argument I remember I was just we were just at each other for like a day and then he went ahead and booked made two appointments for me because he asked me what are the two galleries you'd like to exhibit in Adelaide and I told him and he made appointments for me without me knowing with the gallery directors so I was yeah really livid about that as well but then I settled down and he goes, what have you got to lose? Just paint a couple of paintings and just go go in. So that's what I did. I just got, um, I had my portfolio, which was, you know, not really stuff that you could exhibit. It's kind of more commercial, a more commercial approach to art, being an illustrator. And just took these literally two paintings under my arm and went to visit. One of them told me that um, I might want to go to art school. <laughs> um, and then the other one uh, was the gallery that, I I um that represented me for over 10 years actually.
0: Wow, so you managed to achieve what so many artists find quite difficult in actually, you know, becoming a, an artist and making a living from it. What do you think that it takes to become a a successful artist? I think if you
1: give yourself no other choice and really I didn't really have that many other options because I wasn't academically gifted. I think you definitely have to block out any conservative and sort of any of the conservative voices around you that might be telling you it's a really hard road to take, which it is, but I've never known anything except that feeling of wanting to feel alive and wanting to always be really into my work, like really love it and want to be good at it. And I think if you're a curious person and you want to keep searching and, you yeah, you just want to keep raising that bar for yourself, not giving yourself any other options is a, is a big one because hmm. it's new. I had to keep a really crappy job in order to feel motivated to get to the one that I wanted. And I think one of the worst things you can do is get a stable job because that is absolutely, a, you know, it will, it will just kill that dream because – you no, know, you get used to the money. So, I, I was good at not getting used to the money, but I also had a lot of reasons that were enabling me. So, my ex-husband's family helped me a lot uh, in those early days, just buying art supplies. I remember at, at this point, I was actually doing quite well, and because we were both artists, he's a he's a writer director, and he had just decided to quit his degree and go into filmmaking, study filmmaking, and so we were both uh, yeah we were we were those that couple that was scrounging around at the bottom of the car in the footwell looking for coins to pay for petrol. <laughs> uh, his parents really amazing. I, I remember this one point I was doing quite well I was almost selling out of you know my shows frequently but it was still a, an 18 month turnover you know between exhibitions. So I found myself in this position where I had commissions but I didn't even have enough money to buy uh, supplies and canvases and stuff. So I was like, this is a very – I have a major cash flow problem here. So that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to pound the pavement interstate. So I called. I bought every art collector, you know, any of those magazines that are available at the news agents. Looked through and found all these galleries that I liked that represent, you know, um, emerging to mid-career artists because I didn't want to walk into some fancy gallery and go, hi, (laughs) and make a total idiot of myself. So – did a bit of basic research and then made like two, three, four appointments and then, no, I had a gallery in Melbourne that has sister, sister gallery in Brisbane and then found representation in Sydney as well. So that meant that I could exhibit four times a year. So then that made it sustainable then.
0: Were you actually thinking of changing careers when you first heard of this little thing called MasterChef?
1: I wasn't I was in such a good place I was my my art career was finally stable I was kind of I think I was in fifth year of painting and you know how they always say make a five-year plan Mm. I didn't have have a five-year plan but I worked really hard for five years I was just exhibiting non-stop and I said didn't say no to any exhibitions so uh that was when I started to go oh I'm okay, actually. I I can pay all my bills now, and I even have savings. This is good. Very, very meager, li- very, very humble pie living. Like I was just, it was probably same as the doll what I was earning, but I was doing something that I really loved. So that that was everything to me, and I that for me that was I'm here. <laughs> yeah, like I I gotten to where I wanted to get, and I knew that I was going to be okay.
0: Mm. Yeah. So how did you hear about Master Chef then? Because that took you in another. Oh trajectory, trajectory. really? Yeah, big
1: time. So my best friend Sarah, who I did illustration with, she sent me this text, and it read, "Hey, Poe, I'm not really sure what this is, but I just have a very strong feeling you'll go really far in it." It was interesting. She didn't say you'll win it. She said she'll say, "I have a feeling you get really far." And I was like, what is it? She's like, I don't know. She goes, it's some kind of cooking thing. So it was just masterchef.com. That's all it was.
0: And it, because it, so it had I'm never hot- been, it was the first series, wasn't it? So no one knew yeah. that it would become this huge it thing.
1: Does, yeah, yeah, no, not at all. Uh, so that's all that. That's the only information I had. I hopped on to the site and then applied. And it was just this ridiculous list of very comprehensive questions. I think it was like 36 questions. And it was there to kind of to to vet your interest in being in the food industry. And they really wanted you to be serious about it. That's what the questions seemed to be filtering, like whether you were serious about doing it for a career. But it wasn't specific in that what kind of food career you wanted. So, yeah, it was still very elusive at the time because I don't think they'd even figured out what it was going to be entirely But at that stage. I got through that. Actually, I nearly missed it because I remember thinking, oh, this is so exhausting because I wanted like paragraph answers for each question and I remember I was painting for an exhibition at the time I just abandoned it and I thought, I'll come back to it in a couple of days. I totally forgot about it and saved it. And I went back onto the site and it said, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I think I missed that deadline, but I was half-baked about it anyway and hopped on the site and said, you are lucky we have just extended our deadline for the applications so if you get your application in within this week, um, we will consider it. So I did that, and then I got kept on getting whittling, whittled down. Now we know I think there were over seven thousand entrants for that, maybe. Wow. And then it whittled down to a hundred in each state, or fifty in each state. Can't remember which one now, and the and and then we went for the live auditions. That was your cattle call with your little, you know, instead of limbering out like you would with so you think you can dance with your leg womans we had stood there with an esky.
0: <laughs> so you brought all your ingredients and everything that you're gonna, and cook for them.
1: Yeah, for first audition, first day audition was you had to take an esky and of something you'd already pre-prepared that could be served cold. And you had to serve your food and explain what it was And then if you got through to that audition, you were invited to cook from scratch on site and present it to the actual judges, which, you know, George, Gary, and Matt. And they were there at the auditions? Yeah, on the second day, yes. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know what they were, what what this was, so I didn't know what I was going to walk into. I just had my little trolley getting over you. (laughs) Yeah, there were these three guys sitting in the distance with spotlight on them.
0: What was it like being on the show when it was when you're actually competing and being filmed?
1: I loved it. It was one of the most life affirming things I've ever done. It's it's really informed everything that I've done since, really. And I guess it showed one of the things. One of the unique experiences of MasterChef is that you go into a challenge thinking you're going to dive right because it is so. It's just such a different type of stress that you've never experienced before, and cameras are on you, but you do forget within weeks that they're even there because you know you're just so intensely focused on what you're doing. But what it teaches you is that you are capable of incredible things. When you think you can't even even produce a dish because you don't know how to cook anything from you know a cuisine of a culture or whatever. And then you win the challenge. It's it's a pretty amazing feeling to think that you can you're capable of things that you, you didn't previously think unless you were put under that pressure.
0: So had you done a lot of cooking prior to the show? This is the
1: interesting thing. Not really. I'd grown up around food, like I'd said before, so it's in my DNA. My I have very avid cooks on both sides of the family. I had a nice little repertoire but it was certainly not amazing like at that point I was still murdering steak and three veg uh, I didn't really know how to cook a lot of the dishes that I kind of uh, yeah that uh, on the show it was funny because we got 10 minute phone calls a couple times a week and all the people that had their own families like Julie would be like oh, hi darling would speak to all the kids you know and I would be like Mum, quick just tell me that recipe real quick. <laughs> <laughs> my, my so I, I really was just baking it till I made it on the show, but I had a good instinct for it. Mm. So a lot of the that I cooked, which I find really fa- a fascinating topic, is from palate memory. I knew things went together. I knew how to make that flavour. Sometimes I didn't. And combinations that would work and I didn't know why but it just made sense to when I tasted it I'm like yeah I I think that resembles what I remember and that's how I kind of that's how I cooked for a lot of the competition
0: it must have been quite anxiety inducing though to be kind of on this show and being tested like every day or every week on this skill it is
1: intense but I really thrived in that Environment. All our personal belongings are taken away from us, so we don't have wallets. We can't wander out of the house. We're literally on lockdown. Don't have our phones, don't have access to computers. And I remember a lot of people used to complain about it a lot. And I was like, you idiots, when in your life as a full grown-ass adult, are you going to be able to sit in a room full of people that love the same thing that you do and indulge, completely indulge in it? Like, you you know, you're breathing, sleeping, thinking it. You don't have anything else to worry about because all your, all your bills and all that have to be taken care of. You don't even have access to that kind of thing. I think it's changed now. But So I used to think what an incredible little microcosm I'm in now to be able to focus on this thing that I love and see if I'm any good at it. And I went into it thinking the reason why, why I did it was I definitely had a massive interest in writing. So I, I wanted to write books. And I knew from the art experience, I thought no one's going to want to buy a book from a nobody. No one's going to publish a book by a nobody. Let so me just get my dial on TV for like five minutes, <laughs> I have to drive it from there, because <laughs> I've done it with one of the most difficult careers in the world. So I reckon I can do it. So that was one of the motivating factors. And I was getting to that point where I was becoming so obsessed with food that I was streaming up menus for a place that didn't exist, obviously, and interesting combinations that I could put together um, with cooking. And it was when food TV sort of started to come alive, when, like, the Nagellas and the Jamies and the, you know, Carluchos, uh, all those, um, Gary Rhodes, all those guys were, like, on TV, and, I, and I'd and i gotten cable. So that's when I discovered that, that world. And actually later on when I, my – my art career was going quite well just before MasterChef. I was working at the Central Market because I was getting a bit of cabin fever because I'd become so solitary. So that was my introduction to, like, European food. So it was all quite young and fresh. So, you know, I'd only just started eating cheeses because I didn't grow up with dairy, being, you know, Asian. And I was working at a gourmet shop. So I started to eat all this stuff, and I met a lot of, a lot of the people that I was around in that environment were really avid foodies, so that just sparked something in me, and I yeah started to just obsess about funny things like oh if I if I had a restaurant that you know what what kind of menu would I have and and it became intense enough that I would I'd have sleepless nights over it and I thought this is a bit strange this has just come out of nowhere and I had actually organized to a little cottage industry business to start making jams for a local greengrocer with all their excess stuff that was blemished. And that was kind of my, I thought if I just have one day a week where I can be in a commercial kitchen and just vent this little, you know, this love that I have, it might be enough to sate it but then this thing came up, so yeah. But I was getting there. I knew that I, I, I was thinking in the right way about food, like it was not like your normal person. I was definitely obsessed with it.
0: So you came runner up in the first series of MasterChef. What was it like when you finished and you pretty much, over, not overnight, but um, fairly rapidly became so well known all over Australia?
1: That was strange. I was known a little bit for my art locally, and had a little bit of press through that. So um it was, yes, I was, wasn't completely unfamiliar with the media, but coming out of that was enti- an entirely different thing. I, we were warned about it. We was, we, you know, we that the show, you know, does give you does prepare you a little bit, but. It is a strange thing to come out and be not recognised and then suddenly recognised everywhere. Uh, but I guess you just you just take it as it comes. I mean, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And and so, what were you thinking career wise at that point? Were you thinking now's the time to completely change career, or how did it all happen? Well, the next phase. It was.
1: It was never that. It was never because I loved being a painter and I thought I could have this other career that ran ran parallel with it. Because I was just thinking sort of. More gentler version of it, which was the writing. And I thought, oh, oh I, I was just going to go back to make jams for that greengrocer. <laughs> Huge aspirations. <laughs> Literally. So I thought, I was like, oh, I'll just go back to doing that. That's okay. And I had an exhibition scheduled end of that year that was uh, in October. So my my plan was, well, if I get really far, Amazing, And then if I don't get very far, I can just launch straight into painting my exhibition which would be really good for my headspace because I knew that I'd have a little bit of a, you know, down, have, you know, have a little bit of a probably depressive sort of slightly, yeah, depressive period just coming off such a huge high being on the show.
0: Mm. Mm. So you then made a TV series or actually several TV series for the ABC how did that come about? Did were you actively involved in actually going after them? Did they they come to you? How how did it happen?
1: No, I feel like this is such a I Suzanne, I have this weird thing and I don't I where I feel you're always meant to meet the people that end up being in your life in a significant way.
0: So I if totally you totally agree with that.
1: Because there's just been so many cycles where I've met someone a few years down the track that I met before and they're part of something major in my life and before when I was a painter before MasterChef I was on this show called Beat Beat the Chef on ABC and they were just casting it went through my acting agent actually because I did a little bit of like bit part acting here and they're just doing extras work really and my agent asked me if I, if I was interested in cooking and did I want to be on this new show, and it was just a, a chef, professional chef versus amateur chef situation, tiny budget, and I was on it twice, and they were the same producers of the show, that, <laughs> same, that show, which were, the same, which were the same producers for the cook and the chef. Which is made in Adelaide, then became the producers of my show. But I was approached. So when I popped out of MasterChef, like it was only like probably a couple of weeks after I came out of the show, it was really early on. I got a phone call from um, my, what became my, who became my executive producer at the time. And yeah, Margot Phillips, and she called me and she said, Hi, just wondering if you're interested in having your own cooking show. I was like, What? Uh, Because Maggie Beer and Simon Bright, who were stars of Cooking the Chef, they wanted to go back to their respective careers. I think they'd had enough of TV. And there was this little spot that they wanted to fill with another cooking show. So, planets aligned and that's how that happened.
0: And how did you find making your own TV show? It was – that was probably scarier than being
1: recognised. It was – I, I kept on saying to her, you know, I have no experience in this. How am I going to hold my own? Like it's it. She goes, don't worry, we're experts. We'll know how to guide you. And that's how we did it. And I think they thought that for the first series it would be good to have another chef, uh, like a guest chef for every episode so that I wouldn't have to hold the fort on my own. So that was the approach that we took and it was really good. It was a very simple format. It was just uh, us cooking cooking. A dish each for each other, usually from different cultures, and yeah. So that was the first first series of uh, Post Kitchen,
0: and that went on then to become further series and cookbooks as well.
1: Yes, yes, it did. Yeah, I got around the same time I got a two book deal as well with Huff Collins. So that was and that was really the dream. That was the one that I wanted. So that was. That's real to be able to do. Yeah, so I really, I really just had to fudge my way through it, really. But they were amazing. I mean, it was a very, it was a very safe environment to be with Auntie. That was a good, that was a good starting point because I think if I'd launched into a commercial network or environment, I would have really lost it. I just because of my introvert nature, I think being thrown into doing things that I wasn't sure about would have really, really wrecked me. It was so lucky that I was in with the ABC because shared sensibilities and they were very gentle the way they worked with me. So I was very I was very lucky like that.
0: At what point then did you decide to start your Café jam face?
1: Quite late in the game. I did three years of TV with the ABC. Then I took a year off to write a book and uh, then a couple of books and then – no, a book, a book. And then – uh, and also I had just I'm not great at the media thing actually so after about three years I just felt like I'd pushed that particular I i, I couldn't do any more of it I just found it really invasive in terms of my life and uh, I i felt a bit lost in it it felt a bit like I needed to get out so I i got out of it knowing that I'd come back to it but I just needed a little bit of a rest and and because it had it started so soon i hit the ground running from master chef into post kitchen i felt like i hadn't had that time for respite to just kind of recover and think things through i just kind of went i went straight into that so i wanted to take a year or a couple of years i didn't know how how long to just figure things out a bit and go back to the painting a bit the whole time i was painting still I was still exhibiting one major solo a year so i wanted to keep that up uh then I did then I did two years of Po and Co with SBS, so that was a different series. And it was the end of that second series that we built the cafe on the show. Oh, wow. So that was a good five, six years after MasterChef that I opened Jabface. It's an idea that I had in my uni days with Sarah, who was my best friend, who um, put me onto the whole MasterChef thing, so we'd always dreamt of opening a little French pastry or cake shop, not a patisserie because we're too hairy around the edges. We want we, we wanted something really cosy and cute and Parisian. So yeah, that idea was started way back then.
0: So it's at the Adelaide Central Market. Tell me a little yeah. bit more about it. Yeah, so
1: it's a tiny sliver of a shop. It's, uh, if you look at the market, it's just banks of stalls, which are usually fruit shops. But we've walled – Jono's built um, – Jono, my husband's built two beautiful walls for, for, um, made out of recycled windows. So it kind of walls you in. It's very cosy and it's really tiny and squishy inside. And it's in the market, which is a place that has great memories for me because when we first moved to Australia – it was a place where we kind of we went back to reclaim our culture you know we bought ingredients took them home to replicate dish that reminded us of you know malaysia so for me it was filled with those kinds of memories and that's why i wanted to open up in there and jam face is not what people think it would be everyone expected me to open a southeast asian uh place but it's it's more French than anything and that's with Sarah's influence but I am a huge baker so I had to come out as a baker. Left to my own devices I think I would have written about baking right from day dot but I had branded myself as this Southeast Asian cook from MasterChef so I had to play that out a little bit first and it was really my journey at the time though I wanted to it was a little bit of finding my roots through the cooking that was what my MasterChef thing journey was about and then post for about three years after but then the thing that makes me love cooking the baking started to sort of come up again and I couldn't deny that that's if I open a place that's the direction I wanted to take but there was so much pressure on me to like do the Asian thing so I had to really think through it and I was like no it has to be baking has to be baking because that is where I just feel the most at home when I'm in the kitchen So I think being an artist, it's interesting. I've always been very guided by my gut and I think that's a very important thing for people to learn to develop and flex that muscle and don't doubt yourself because they are your truths and you have to hang on to them for dear life because at the end of the day, I think, you know, there's so much pressure on artists or creatives to be original, 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 but it's really you just finding your own truth and that that is what makes you original and so you have to really stick to that core belief because it's your anchor it's what allows you to um yeah it's it, it to not just be a bit of driftwood and and yeah so yeah it's it's really you have to really yeah follow that instinct so yeah so i went baking but we actually started with a market stall so a, a farmers market stall so that was the original idea so um, I'd had that already for three, two years, and that's at the Adelaide Farmers Market. So that was my little pop-up thing. So that was the r- original one. And then we we really had to like, oh, bricks and mortar. That was, that was scary.
0: Yeah. How did you go about doing that, um, you know, starting in something that's quite a, sort of a capital-intensive project?
1: So we, we started with Matt and Sarah. So Matt's my ex-husband who then um, – um, is now with Sarah, my best friend.
0: <laughs> so it's a,
1: a interesting part of my life. So there's four partners mm-hmm. to cushion the blow and Jono, my husband as well. And we thought that was just the next stage for the business. Uh, we Needed a commercial kitchen. We were operating from a friend's kitchen for a long time, but that wasn't sustainable anymore because the market stall was growing, and we thought we either hire a kitchen and go full, commit to this fully, and get a place. Yeah, we just we just thought that that's definitely the next step. But it's very it's, it was very scary and still is very scary running a small business.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. But I guess it's great to have. Uh, business partners who all share the same vision yes
1: yes it is it's i think it's very rare and i think as a creative that's your greatest challenge is to keep honest to your brand and we all need money but just make sure that things that you take on are cohesive with that with what you want to represent and i think because it's very easy to lose your way there's a lot of seductive stuff out there where you know, you get paid to do a post or whatever it is. But if you can't talk about it outside of work hours, don't go there because you'll seriously dig yourself into a very big hole.
0: So what are the main challenges of uh, running your own business? Well, it'd be good if we could count.
1: <laughs> We're all creatives. So, Sarah's, about- <laughs> so Sarah's-, Sarah's the same as me. So she's an illustrator. Um uh, Matt's writer director and John is actually an actor, so yeah, it was pretty funny at the beginning. I remember, yeah, we were all it's it's a bit comedic sometimes. Challenges are the same as any small business owner. I think everyone thinks because I'm in the media, it's like some kind of you know golden handshake. And I think if you're that kind of person that you know is good at using the media, then. Yes, maybe. But I'm not. I really like working. I enjoy working. I enjoy the creativity. That's what I, why I have the business. It's not for anything else except that it's an expression of the things that I love to do and things that I want people to experience. So the challenges are how do you make that financially feasible? It's very difficult because everything we do is handmade. And for me, if you're not going to go handmade, why do it at all? So that's hard. Working with your best friends is hard. We've had lots of issues, but we've worked through them because we know we have to. Because we don't, we don't ever want to have the business be the thing that splits us. So we've just worked really hard on communication and being honest with each other, and you know, and having systems to e- enable us to communicate to each other more effectively and honestly. But one of the things that I find the hardest is actually working in a collaborative way because I've just been like Lone Ranger for so much of my life that even communi- communicating a simple act of you know demonstrating something or teaching someone how to do something the way you want, I find that really uh, – it's exhausting. But I've learnt to do that now because I have to. And managing personalities, so uh, managing staff is really – the biggest, biggest challenge because the thing is with being a creative, it's like having having your arms tied and letting everyone else be your appendage. And so being being an artist, I mean, all artists I think by nature are control freaks. You know, you, everything has to be, like, you know, the way you want. So that, that I find that hard. And your, your vision can get lost in translation so easily when you're working collaboratively. Uh, so... I've had to learn to be a bit of a hard nut. And I hate it. I hate confrontation, but I've had to I've had to sort of just yeah, get on with it. Have to say what you, what's on your mind. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So do you think that when you follow a passion and it becomes your career, does it ever stop being a passion, do you think?
1: Yeah, I think that it is one of the greatest challenges being a creative because you you that, that's where your instinct kicks in. When you know that it's Starting to wear you down and you no longer love it, in fact, you resent it, it's time to take a step back and figure out how you can reinvent this thing to make you love it again, I think. So you have to be really aware when it's starting to take that that path and, and yeah, just notice these fluctuations where you aren't sure about it anymore. I think there's a lot of danger also, like especially people in the entertainment industry, where they're like, I want to be here. I want to be there at that point. I think it's a very silly aspiration to have. I think always go for the meanders. Meander your way there because you're then always checking in with your gut and going, is this actually making me happy? I know this is where I want to be. Like, on paper, it looks good, but am I actually still enjoying this? Does this actually... Help me become a better creative, or is it killing it? Or is it? And I I feel like it's very dangerous to just go for the thing at the end, which is often a side effect. Often people go for the fame, which is a side effect. It's not it's not the thing that you do it. It shouldn't be the thing that you do it for, because you will always get lost. Mm. So I I always tell, especially younger younger um, talent. When they go, oh, what's your you know, what's your biggest bit of advice? I was like, just work bloody hard and listen to your gut. If you're on the way there, you suddenly realize you don't even like it. Be honest enough with yourself to know that it, you need to take it in a slightly different direction because you find yourself in not a good headspace at the end of it.
0: Mm. And what advice would you give someone who is in a position that I think a lot of listeners of my podcast might be in, which is they don't love what they do? They know they want to change career, but they might be too afraid and they're coming up with all all the excuses under the sun as to why they shouldn't do it. What advice would you give them? I
1: really have a belief in in dreaming. I think it's a really, I think just go for it. It sounds so simple, but if you think you're, if you have a love for it and you think you'll be good at it and there's nothing really there, you have to just take that, step and stare into the abyss and be willing to make sacrifices for it. So, you know, you you can't have it all. And that's the great pendulum of life. You know, creators live very, un, you know, financially unstable lives. So you have to be ready for that. But there's ways of getting around that as well, you know. Um, I think one, one big thing is that you have to be willing to make some sacrifices because it is an unknown being in being in a creative field but if you love it you will get there that is a knowledge that I have if I if I if I aspire to something and I know I'm good at it I know I can get there it's just you just have to be willing to work really hard for it and keep believing in it and keep not having money while you're getting there you know that kind of thing so it's a lot of it is financial actually I think for people that and wanting to make that change that's probably the biggest the biggest fear
0: absolutely
1: so, yeah, and I have a friend who gave had a really good had she goes just save up, save up to give yourself that good year of being able to explore. Mm. I think that's a really practical one. She said when I'm doing well, she goes I put my money into like a little fund for the rainy days when things aren't so good or when I think of a new project that I might need money for that's so sensible mm. um but it, it's really – I encourage a lot of friends that, you know, actually are made redundant or, you know, when they're looking – when they're really down or that they're, they're not – I was like, this is really good. This is really exciting. You've hit rock bottom. This means that that decision is kind of being made for you now. Like how exciting. You've got a new – you can start from scratch again. So I think um, – those things are always good when you just really know you can't stay there anymore because sometimes the indecision is the thing that kills you. Like Absolutely. you're like, oh, I'm stuck in this office but I wish I could be a landscape gardener, you know, I love being in the open, whatever it is. And and it's that thing of, yeah, I I think that I always tell friends, this is so exciting, you know, you that, that sort of decision has been taken away from you. You can try and take that leap now. Um, but yeah, I think I think really mainly it's all in the head. So it's it's really just just giving it a red hot go. Yep, great advice. Mistakes are a really good thing. I think people that also have had jobs often really fear making mistakes, but that that's always when you learn the most. And if you are really like genuinely in for that search, you, you will get there. You will find that thing that you love.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. One of my guests was saying that you know, even if, when you're starting out at something, you're going to be bad at it. So you got to just expect that you got to make mistakes, but know that you know the more you do it, the better you get, and you'll get there. Mm. Especially mm. if it's something you love.
1: That's a big one. That's mm. a really, really big one. Um, yeah, you really, really have to love it because of the sacrifices that you have to make for it. And I think the other thing is. Uh you, you do have to understand that it's a very different type of discipline as well because when you're in a normal workplace, you have someone kind of cracking the whip, you have deadlines. And as a creative, uh, I, I guess it's not really always about being creative. It's about freedom, isn't it?
0: Mm, yeah, so Exactly.
1: Like you could be someone who's an artist that now has always dreamt of going into medicine. So it might actually be the other way around. So I'm assuming people always want to be creatives, um, which is not correct. Yeah, you have to be willing to make those sacrifices because, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's a hard road to get there. Mm.
0: Yeah. So tell me, what is success for you?
1: Mm, that's a really interesting one. Success for me is definitely about I think it's actually just being completely comfortable in my own skin.
0: That makes and sense and being
1: Yeah, and being able to be still. It's something I'm really trying to work on at the moment because I'm a workaholic. I've written books, I've had my own TV shows, I've done a lot of stuff. And I still feel slightly unworthy and that's why I keep charging at it so much. And I've had to – I've lost a lot of friends and I don't see – not not because of anything bad, but because I just don't have any time for normal things like seeing friends and hanging out with my family. So at the moment, for me, success is trying to find that balance and actually just being really – being contented like with what I have. And what's really funny is – before I went on MasterChef, I knew that I had a knowledge. I kn- that was, I know that I. I thought to myself, this is pretty good. Like, I'm not in any way. I'm so stress free. All I have to do is just roll out of bed and paint pictures. No one tells me what to do. Um, I this is this is the ultimate. And I knew by going on the show, I was going to turn my life on its head but i was greedy for that experience that's what i've always been i've always been very greedy for life experiences and that's what kind of that's what took me there ultimately it's great
0: <laughs> <laughs> you that know sounds good oh, No, i totally get that i think being comfortable in your own skin and kind of in your own flow i think that's yeah i think that's a wonderful way to describe success actually yeah
1: um, cuz i think i'm not very brave like i i'd what? like to be in-
0: really way.
1: Yeah, I feel After like all I can, you've done. Yeah. I think I can be more brave with the way that I express myself. And, um, hmm. yeah, but for me at the moment, it's learning how to be still. Still doing what I love, yeah. but just knowing yeah. when I need to engage with other humans as well. Because <laughs> other people need but it's always about me needing them, I find. When you're in the media, you do get... You do get caught up in that because so much is asked of you, that's the problem. Unnatural amounts of um, stuff is asked of you and then you do get a little bit, it's hard not to get a bit drama about it. So then it's like, oh sorry, I can't do that, I've got a TV show to make, sorry, I can't do that, I'm writing a book at the moment, but who cares really? (laughs) (laughs) That's just your issues, you know, they just want to hang out with you. So I'm trying to make room for that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah can you tell me what your travel tip is for where you're from or where your family is originally from travel tip for
1: adelaide oh there's so many um definitely go to mount lofty gardens in autumn because the colors of the trees are incredible and that's in the hills and i really do love the State Gallery. I love the Art Gallery of South Australia. I go there all the time for inspiration. I love just standing there in front of paintings and particularly looking at skin on all the old paintings. I have this fascination with skin. So yeah, um, that's a really beautiful gallery. So many things here. Uh, All the wine country in the Adelaide Hills is beautiful Mm -hmm. as well.
0: Oh, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your story.
1: Oh, no, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's, it's always interesting to figure out how I did get here. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to Freedom Hunters. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It will give the series a boost and help other people find it. And you can find out more on what I'm passionate about on my website, secondsister.com or Instagram at Suzanne Delahunty. Tune in on the first of every month when another inspiring guest will be sharing their story of how they found freedom in a career that they love.